Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now this is our 80th episode so we're headed back off American soil and this time we picked a case for our listeners out of South Africa. The case today is going to briefly involve a crime against a child so listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. Currently over 8,000 followers. I'd love to be at 10,000 followers by the time I leave for CrimeCon in a little over a month. So if you could, and you're already a follower of the Facebook page, if you could share the page and tell everybody uh, how much you like the podcast, I'd greatly appreciate it. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some True Blue Crime merch. Regina from Maine should be getting her merch for her PayPal donation today, so thanks again, Regina. For no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The country of South Africa is recognized around the world as the cradle of humankind. It gained this recognition after the discovery of humanoid skeletons going back millions of years in various limestone cave systems around 30 miles or 50 kilometers northwest of Johannesburg. The fossilized remains of human ancestors are often found in these caves, sometimes as the humanoid ventured into a cave for protection after an animal attack and subsequently died, or other times the bodies were brought into the caves for burial. In 1935, the first remains were located in the area, and soon anthropologists from around the world traveled to the region and began locating various human ancestors dating as far back as 2.3 million years ago. As recent as 2013, new species of prehumans were being discovered, including Homo naledi, a short bipedal species that scientists have suggested used fire, stone tools, and conducted burial rites for their dead as far back as 300,000 years ago. While scientists work in the area to fill in the evolutionary gaps in our timeline, they spend a lot of time postulating what life was like for different species like Homo naledi. They face threats from animals such as leopards, lions, and hyenas. Homo naledi and many other species like it faced one threat that is thought to have brought about their extinction, that threat being us, Homo sapiens. Everywhere Homo sapien populations grew, scientists found it, find a decline and extinction of other humanoid species. While some of the extinctions may be related to indirect external factors, such as competition for food, shelter, access to water, etc., many of the extinctions may have been the result of directed killings of the smaller, less intelligent other Homo species. Homo sapiens continue to kill other species as well as members of our own species, and sometimes for sport. In 1995, the cradle of mankind was the hunting grounds for one member of our species, and before he was caught, he killed somewhere between 38 to 76 people. This is the story of the serial killer responsible for what was called the ABC killings. Moses Sithul was born on November 17, 1964, in Vuzlarus, South Africa, located in the region of Gauteng, the home of the cradle of mankind. We'll refer to Moses by his first name, even though he is farthest from a righteous religious man, because I'm afraid I'll mispronounce his last name and lose my non-explicit rating for the podcast. 
Moses was born near the town of Boxburg during the heart of apartheid in South Africa. The legal segregation that existed until the early 90s ensured the monetary and political power in the country belonged to the white minority, and life for non-whites was extremely difficult and unfair. Laws were enacted that made it illegal for people of different races to marry or even have intimate relations in an effort to force the separation of the races and prevent any confusion about someone's social standing. Further efforts were made to separate the races geographically, and 20 different areas were set aside with racial designations. The result was a more modern system of reservations like those allocated for Native Americans during the late 1800s in America. In 1955, a town named Sophia Town was one of the few areas in Johannesburg where black citizens could own land and it had the only swimming pool in Johannesburg that black children were allowed to swim in. But as the town grew larger and larger, the government eventually forced its residents to relocate to a new area of the country while they bulldozed the entire town and renamed it Triumph and made it a whites-only part of town. And I'll just take a break here because... Uh, we're about to get into um, some history here with Moses. Uh, I was a, a child, I guess, during um, the end of apartheid. And being that I was a child, I wasn't really paying attention to things on the global scale. Um, so going back through this, you know, I'd, I'd heard of apartheid. I'd learned of it in school uh, just on kind of a surface level. But as I kind of dug into uh, as I often do when I'm researching cases like this, as I, I got further and further into what apartheid was like in South Africa, I realized just how absolutely terrible. I mean, I knew it was, I knew it was a terrible thing, uh, and it was basically what segregation was in the Southern United States uh, until the Civil Rights Movement. But I just didn't realize how pervasive it was and how it lasted until the late 80s early 90s and then obviously um, took some time for for things to adjust in the country after after it was abolished but uh, just again just doing the research for some of these cases I sometimes I learn so much uh, unfortunately a lot of it's uh, some of the negative stuff um, about a certain region of either the, the America or uh, the world a country in the world but uh, yeah, this, this this apartheid, the more I read about it, the more absolutely disgusted I was that this existed, that it existed for so long, that it existed on a, so callously, I guess, in, in on the world stage, that you had an entire country that was practicing such an unfair amount of segregation for so long that and, and nothing was really done about it. and And the whole country was kind of not kind of, the whole country was a powder keg uh, leading into the late 80s, or early 90s with all this, rightfully so, all this anger about the oppression that was going on as a result of the segregation and and the lack of opportunities for the majority of the people in the country. So what we're going to talk about, these crimes that, that Moses is going to conduct, and we'll, we'll tie it in a little bit here with, with the apartheid. I'm, I'm just trying to especially for the American listeners, I'm, I'm trying to set the stage as I always do, not just in this case, the region of the world, or in this case, the country, but just what's going on at this time, at the time Moses is born, and through at least the beginning part of our story, kind of the world that, that Moses was born into. 
So it's, it's obvious Moses was not born into a great situation. He was facing a life of lower class living and borderline servitude in a modern age. His situation got worse when his father died when Moses was only five years old. His mother, unable to provide for Moses and his four siblings, abandoned her children at a local police station. The children were put into a local orphanage where Moses would later claim he was the victim of abuse on a regular basis. As a young teenager, he ran away from the orphanage and lived with an older brother for a bit until he secured a job in some nearby gold mines. And so we talk in past episodes, a lot of the times when we have a serial killer and Moses is gonna become the most prolific serial killer in South African history that, that, that is known. We talk about some of the stuff with the, the McDonald Triangle, we talk about head injuries, we talk about abuse, and we're not going to know much about Moses' childhood except for what we have here, which is you know, he's abandoned by his mother, put into this orphanage where he's supposedly, and, and it's not a stretch to believe that he was a victim of abuse. These orphanages had a lot of physical abuse, sometimes sexual abuse of the children that were in these orphanages and so he's again a lot of times victims of trauma as children will become an adult that inflicts trauma on other people it's, it's that cycle of violence so he's got abandonment issues that we know of he's got the experienced and witnessed trauma uh, that we know about as a child again we don't know anything about the mcdonald triangle we ha don't have any references to his childhood to his behaviors as a child just more what he was exposed to and but what he is exposed to is enough to kind of set the stage uh, for what is he's he's going to do and in 1987 the then 23 year old moses committed his first sexual assault uh, at least the first one that is reported or the first one that we know of it's likely that he committed more before then but his affinity for committing his first of many horrendous crimes is attributed to many different factors. Some believe he wanted to commit acts of violence against women as revenge for his mother's abandonment of him and the subsequent abuse he experienced. Others have pointed to a bad sexual experience he claimed he had during his teenage years, although no further information is available about that experience, and some say it was a combination of many damaging experiences he had throughout his young life. And so again, Sometimes these serial killers will harbor a lot of anger, which is what we're going to see in his killings. And the anger is directed specifically towards a certain demographic, oftentimes a very narrow window of race, gender, and age. And we are going to see that here. The, the, the age is going to vary a little bit. And... I think there's some reasons for that, but for the most part, he, his his victims are very similar in appearance, in age, in race, and that's very indicative that he is targeting these women as a, a revenge against somebody that he can't actually commit revenge against. So whether it's this woman that he had the bad sexual experience with, uh, whether it's women roughly his mother's age when he was abandoned it's it's hard to tell exactly the main genesis for his his anger but it's it's likely that it's either definitely one or definitely the other or it could be a combination of of both together and two years later in 1989 he was charged with sexual assault after a victim reported his crime to the local police 
After he was convicted in a trial, he was sentenced to six years in prison for his crimes and sent away to Pretoria Central Prison. While in prison in 1993, he met Martha Nalavu, the aunt of a fellow prisoner, as she was visiting her nephew. Moses fell in love with Martha and sent her letters and requested she visit him. She ignored him at first, but eventually began visiting Moses on a regular basis. He was released from prison later that year in November of 1993, having been given time off his sentence for good behavior. But Moses was not rehabilitated and had learned an important lesson that living victims could report him and he would go back to jail. So after his house arrest parole ended in early 1994, he hatched a plan to commit more sexual assaults and avoid capture. By the time Moses was released from prison, apartheid was over and South Africa found itself in a form of social anarchy. While the destruction of the abusive and immoral system was necessary, it would take some time for the country to reach a form of homeostasis. And this is what I talked about. Apartheid was in place for... I want to say it was close to 50 years. So for an entire generation, people lived under this oppressive system that if you were born of a certain skin color, there was no way that you were going to own property. You weren't going to achieve promotion in your job. You were lucky if you had a job and could scrape by on enough money to feed your family. And so, and again, that went on for 50 years. And it's kind of that beaten dog mentality. And I don't mean to compare people to dogs, but it's just as a society as a whole, when you're just oppressed for so long, sometimes you, you lose the ability to understand that there is or should be a better system out there and when that system arrives in the form of free democracy and no uh, class segregation and all that kind of stuff at, you know at first there's going to be a period in which after living under such oppressive rules for so long people really don't know how to adjust and that's really when Moses released from prison this is literally the the change over the negotiation period as they called it between the end of apartheid and the beginning of democracy and freedom in South Africa so he's getting released as the country is basically a powder keg uh, with with the social anarchy going on and only a couple months after the first ever open and free election in April of 1994 in South Africa Moses is believed to have committed his first murder while the specifics of his murders are unknown, and even some of his victims remain unknown, his general modus operandi was similar to that of Robert Baker, who we called the Butcher Baker from Alaska. We covered him in episodes 38 and 39 of True Blue Crime. And I say that because Moses used several aliases and pretended to be a businessman that could offer better wages for female workers he located around various towns in Pretoria. His business revolved around offering aid to women and children who had suffered abuse, especially those living on the streets during the end times of apartheid. Uh, so as we saw with Robert Baker in Alaska, he found this perfect hunting ground uh, in Anchorage, Alaska. It was the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, the pipeline in Alaska had brought in a lot of sex workers that were desperate for cash, and so it was very easy for Robert Baker, who was an actual businessman, to offer cash to these 
these women to get them alone, to get them separated, uh, at which point he would conduct his sexual assaults and his murders of these women and then bury them in isolated places in in uh, the frontier of Alaska. And so it was kind of the, that perfect stage for, for a man like Robert Baker. And Moses coming out of prison in 1993 is going to find that South Africa is a very easy place for him to, to conduct his ruse of pretending to be a businessman. There's a lot of uh, women who are looking for better wages. It wouldn't have been hard to believe at that point that especially Moses was said to be pretty charming to have this uh, young guy who has dreams and aspirations that he's able to follow for the first time in his life that he's able to try to recruit these women to work for him Uh, so again it's all believable had it been a few years earlier there's probably been a lot more women questioning how this guy could have these big dreams and goals because because of his skin color he wouldn't have been allowed to uh, operate a business or have the means to offer wages like he claims he's going to give these women so he kind of enters into this perfect storm of everything's going on where he can locate these women that are underpaid that are dreaming of bigger things and just like just like what happened in Anchorage, Alaska, Moses is going to use Pretoria, South Africa, post-apartheid to be his his hunting ground for these women. And on July 16, 1994, Moses isolated, sexually assaulted, and murdered 18-year-old Marina Manoma. Moses later claimed he killed her because he felt she yelled at him when he asked her for directions. The cause of death was suffocation, and she'd been found with one of her own underwear used as a ligature around her neck. This would become one of the identifying behaviors that linked the victims across what would become three towns. And I'm going to apologize in advance, just like in many of my covering of foreign or international cases, uh, I'm probably going to completely mess up some of these names. I'm not familiar with the pronunciations of these these names out of South Africa, so Uh, Some, at least the first names are easy, but a lot of the last names, if I mess them up, if you're from South Africa, please forgive me. I'm going to do my best to to get these correct, but uh, if I mess them up, please just laugh at me and and, uh, we'll we'll just get through this together. But uh, two weeks later, Moses and his wife Martha had an argument over a set of keys, and Moses left the home, abandoning his wife and the three-month-old baby, and he never returned. With his relationship over, Moses honed his practice of killing women by isolating them via fake job offers. Moses had paperwork made up that looked official, including company letterhead, and he would have those letters drafted that offered employment with set interview dates and times. And we're going to run through the list of his crimes here, including the names. I think it's always important to name the victims of these crimes, and there's going to be a lot of them in this case. I think other than the unknown, if you add those in plus the names I'm, I'm going to get to, we're going to hit 38 victims here uh, in total. And again, I think it's important to, to list them off. Now, there's not a lot of information about each of these murders. Uh, there's about four or five articles total online about this guy and about his crimes. So uh, when I did find something where uh, either a person testified at the trial or 
spoke with police and somehow it, it made it into the media. I'll, I'll touch on a couple of the victims, uh, but for the most part, all of these victims were isolated by Moses and then killed and their bodies left somewhere. So in August of 1994, Moses killed 26-year-old Amanda Thieth and 32-year-old Joyce Mashabella. In September of 1994, he killed 24-year-old Refiole Mokali and 22-year-old Rose Mogotzi. And his final victim in 1994 was killed in December and discovered in January of 1995 and was never identified. And this is, there's going to be a lot of these women that unfortunately are never identified. We haven't talked about it yet, but his organization was a, ironically, I guess it was a organization that was attempting to prevent the abuse of women and children that either lived on the streets or lived in poverty. And so that served two purposes. One is it made him look like a savior of the streets, somebody that could be trusted and would lower the guard for some of these women to to meet with him alone because if he's out there championing against abuse of women and children, then you know he must be a good guy and and they let their guard down and secondly because some of his victims are likely going to be women who have been forced to live on the street uh, this they've, they've lost family members now this is a time period in which there was a lot of killing between factions uh, as a part of the end of apartheid uh, in just one of the cities that uh, he's going to commit some of his murders. Boxburg, there was a Boxburg massacre, and I want to say it was either in the late 80s or early 90s, and it was uh, a militant politi- political group came into town and killed like 45 people in a, in a massacre and a shootout. Um, so you're going to end up with a lot of orphans, a lot of people living on the street because the provider for the family was killed in, in one of these massacres or in some of the street violence. Uh, So there's going to be a lot of women that are victims of Moses that are not going to be identified, uh, likely didn't have identification uh, through either the state or the country. And again, this is a time of of political upheaval, social anarchy, political anarchy to a certain degree. Some of these people are not going to have gotten identified by the new government by the time that they're that they're they're killed and located. And now after killing 27-year-old Beauty Soko and 25-year-old Sarah Makono in early 1995, Moses went on to commit three murders in April of 1995. He killed 24-year-old Nikiwi Daiko and then while killing 25-year-old Leda Nadaglamanda, he left her two-year-old son Sibusiso with a head injury and the toddler died eight days after his mother. By spring of 1995, police realized they had a killer on the loose, but the crime started to change towns and some of the practices of the killer changed. What had begun as sexual assaults followed by strangulation almost immediately after the crime had turned into longer and longer torture sessions before death. This meant the killer was either evolving or someone new was also killing in the same area. And remember, we've talked about this before, serial killers don't you know, set up a, a business and a monopoly on, on committing 
uh, murder in a certain area. You can have, and we often have seen this, two serial killers operating at the same time. There actually was another serial killer that was operating around this time, just before Moses was operating, and he was actually killed by a police officer during uh, Moses's killing spree. And there, there was some belief that Moses and this guy were working together to commit their crimes, which was never proven. And Moses would later say he didn't even know this other guy. But again, it's it's not as if these serial killers are you know the DMV and they they take a number and and wait for their turn to go on their killing spree. They're often operating at the same time in the same areas, and so police can't automatically assume that any murder victim is linked specifically to a certain criminal, especially if the geographical area has changed. If they Moses has committed however many murders he has to this point, all in the same area, and then a murder is committed in another part of town, another town over, it's no guarantee that Moses committed that crime in the next town over or any serial killer did. Uh, it could be a completely unrelated case. So, so the police are, they have this body count mounting of these murdered women and now they're now they're dealing with an evolving criminal or a copycat that's that's more into torture than than the original serial killer was so they're they're trying to sort out this mess as as unfortunately more and more victims are being found and so in may of 1995 while police were trying to figure out how to link the crimes moses struck four times he killed 29 year old esther menentaja 21 year old granny ramela 19 year old Elizabeth Mathetsa and 28-year-old Mildred Lapool. Mildred's husband Jimmy would later tell investigators that his wife came home one day elated that she'd been offered a job as a clerical worker with Moses's organization called Child Protection Community Organization. If Mildred performed well, she would be promoted to a social worker in three years' time. Jimmy waited patiently for his wife to come home on May 30th after her interview and tell him how it went. However, she never returned home, and her body was found almost two months later, another victim on the growing list. And in the case of, of Mildred Lapool, her husband had some information about who she was going to meet, but I think the guy called himself Professor Pile or something along those lines. Uh, he, had, he had many different aliases and, and names because, of course, uh, he can't go around town saying, you know, he's Moses Sithole and, and please come meet with him. And then when all these women go missing after meeting with Moses, it's pretty easy for the police to track down who this guy is. Now, he will use his name in a couple cases later on, which is how police are, are going to figure out that he's involved. But for the most part, he at least early on, he would change the organization name. He would change his own name. When he met these women, he'd have the letterhead changed so that it looked different, so that police weren't able to just clue in on one specific suspect. Because I'm sure at the same time, people are talking on the street saying, Mildred went missing after taking a job with this child protection community organization. So if a guy offers you a job with this place, don't go because you'll get killed. And... If police know this and, and he offers a job to somebody else with the same job name, they could report it and he could potentially be turned in or caught. So he's going to change the name of this organization a few times. He's going to change his name that he's giving to these women. 
try to stay one step ahead of, of the victims and the police. And Moses killed four more women in June and July, including 30-year-old Emestina Mosebo and 25-year-olds Francina Sithabi, Josephine Malagani, and Elsie Mosango. As August rolled around, Moses began claiming victims at an incredible rate. He struck five times in August, killing three unidentified women, along with 30-year-old Oscarina Yakalase and 26-year-old Makoba Mogotsi. And Makoba worked at a shelter for abandoned children, and Moses ran into her there while he was passing out flyers for his organization that was now named Youth Against Human Abuse. He asked her how much she made at her job, and he scoffed at the amount that she told him. He promised to return with money for her and asked her to go on a date with him to Johannesburg, and they would talk about a new job for her at his organization. While Mokaba couldn't get permission to leave work, her work colleagues were excited for her and covered for her so she could go on her lunch date. Unfortunately, her body was found a month later. So from these couple examples that we do actually have records of his exact behavior, what we're seeing is that predatory behavior, he's predating on women who are in positions of, of low pay, low ceiling type of jobs they're not going to go very far the one he says hey come work for me three years later you'll be a social worker you'll be able to go places and do things uh this woman he finds her at a at a youth shelter for abandoned children basically an orphanage and you know he's got this backstory of course he can charm people because he has experienced being an abandoned child and suffering abuse and living in these orphanages so so he's got what we would call here in america the street cred that it sounds like he knows what he's talking about because he experienced this as a child but instead of actually trying to make a change or trying to do something different he's just using this to build rapport with these victims uh, to get them to trust him to feel like if he's running these organizations and he's the victim of abuse and he's campaigning against further abuse that it's safe to go with them go for a car ride to Johannesburg uh, again once he gets uh, Mokaba in his car she's now isolated he can drive her just about anywhere in the remote areas outside of Pretoria where he can sexually assault her, uh, kill her, and then uh, discard her body. And Moses continued to escalate his behavior and he committed 10 more murders in September of 1995. He killed 26-year-old Nelisiwi Zulu on September 4th, 43-year-old Amelia Rapidile on September 7th, 31-year-old Monica Vilakazi and an unidentified female on September 12th, and 20-year-old Agnes Mumboli, 21-year-old Hazel Maracazella, 45-year-old Sidi Matella, and three unknown women on September 17th. And he's going to claim he killed these uh, six women on September 17th. I'm thinking police are going to get this information later from him, and I don't know if this is really really good memory on his part where he's proud of the fact he killed six women in one day and so and so he's claiming now these these six crimes in a single day is kind of a machismo bravado thing or if he really can't recall 
which days he killed these women is and just kind of lumping them together sometime around the 17th i killed you know these three women and then these three i don't know who they were because he's probably often not going to get names uh the police are going to be the ones to identify all these victims he's likely going to maybe know their first name uh, maybe know what they look like but unfortunately he's killed so many women at this point he's likely going to have some confusion about the dates the uh, identities of who he killed on what date whether or not he's even involved in the crime but we're just going off what the police kind of when they finally put it all together this is the information that they were able to come up with and he killed three more women in october including beauty not a benny and she had no age listed and two unknown victims and a final unidentified victim was attributed to moses on november 6 but as we're going to find out it's likely she had to have been killed sometime in october and that's because South African police turned to several people for help during their investigation. And due to the slight differences in crime and geography, as we mentioned before, they weren't 100% sure that one person was responsible for all the crimes. So they reached out to famed FBI profiler Robert Ressler to look at the crimes and offer his expert opinion. And Robert Ressler said that he believed all the crimes were related and they were carried out by an individual who had escalated his crimes over time. If you remember, Ressler is one of the founding members of the FBI Behavioral Unit, uh, Profiling Unit, and he investigated several serial killers in prison that would conduct interviews with them, and they would talk about the first killing, second killing, and, and on and on and on, and they developed many different psychological profiles based on the killer, based on the types of crimes it committed. Uh, so this is something they had seen before where you have a killer who their first few murders, they're going to commit them in a very similar fashion. And this is what they would call an organized killing where they've got this whole thing planned out uh, in advance. They've got their you know, fake paperwork. They've got their uh, plan in place to from the beginning until the time they commit the murder oftentimes even how they're going to dispose of the body is planned out and they're going to look at sometimes these highly organized killers they will push the limit of of what they can do with their victim before they kill them and in this case uh, robert wrestler is looking at it and saying yeah just because these crimes are changing a little bit to where they're escalating to include torture that's something we've seen before that's something we would expect now wrestler would say it is possible that two different people were committing these crimes and that's where the idea came that he may have worked with this other serial killer that was killed by police but again uh, whether it's true or not whether you want to believe him or not moses uh, claimed uh, later to police that he worked alone and all these kills were done by him and so for geography moses's first crimes occurred in the town of adderidgeville and the next series occurred in Boxburg, and his last crimes were in a suburb of Johannesburg known as Cleveland. And so the media recognized the phonetic pattern and dubbed him the ABC killer. The massive amount of victims did not go unnoticed by the media or the general public, and the newly elected president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, personally visited Boxburg during the height of the crimes to appeal to the public to help put an end to the killings. So as I mentioned before, this is a very turbulent time in South African history, this time period, 1994-95, as they adjust to a new form of government and 
uh, exit the dark shadow of apartheid. And so while they're trying to basically rebuild the social structure of the country, they've got this massive amount of, of murder occurring. As I said, I think it was September of 1995, I think there was 10 killings, something along those lines, all, all in the area of Boxburg or, or Cleveland, uh, somewhere in that area. And so this is not going to go unnoticed. Uh, and, and one thing a new government has to do is, is instill a sense of security and stability amongst its population. And so the last thing that the South African government wants is this free-for-all on crime. And there is a lot of crime. We're going to talk about it at the end here. There's a lot of other crime going on in South Africa. Uh, it's kind of a wild, wild west situation. But this, this killing spree definitely rose above all other crime to be, kind of be one of the main concerns for citizens of, of, of the area. And as police narrowed in on a list of suspects, they became suspicious of Moses and his organizations. They learned of his past sexual assault conviction and his time spent in prison and felt he was a good suspect to investigate for the crimes. And in August of 1995, just before the deadliest month of his crime spree, Investigators were looking for Moses after he was seen by a witness walking with a victim of the ABC killing shortly before she was found dead. And Moses became aware he was a wanted man and went into hiding. And despite being on the run, he was still able to dupe women into falling for his phony job offers, and his escalation may have been triggered by the feeling of the investigative net closing in on him. And I read this two different ways. One said that he was seen by a witness walking with a victim basically across this field and then he walked back alone across the field and this witness went to go check what happened to this woman and found her dead. Another said that he had used his real name with a victim and the victim told either it was co-workers or family members or a significant other that she was meeting with this Moses sithole and then she ends up dead and, and he's believed to be the last person and they already understand that he's got this fake organization scam that he's running on, on his victims. So they likely you know, put it all together. Basically, he's, he's now in the crosshairs of the investigation, but he goes into hiding he, and he's been homeless since July of the previous year of 94. Uh, he committed one known murder before he walked out on his wife and, and, and infant child. And ever since then, he's somehow just been living on the run uh, and committing all these murders, which I don't want to use the term impressive because that makes it sound like it's a positive thing that he's doing. But it's it's difficult to believe that even though it's true, but that he was able to commit this entire crime spree by ne while not having an actual you know, stable base, uh, a place for him to go back to, a, a place where he could lay low for a while. Um, he was just basically, as far as I could tell, he was kind of couch hopping or crashing at relatives' houses this entire time. And in September 1995, police discovered a mass grave that was attributed to the killer. Ten bodies belonging to the victims were located in the Van Dyke gold mine near Johannesburg. One of the victims, 
Amelie Rapidil was known to have a scheduled meeting with Moses just before she went missing. So this was the victim that had told somebody and he had used his real name before they met up. So by in August, they're suspicious that he's involved. In September, they know he's involved in this. And I believe you know, when he was when he, he ran away from the orphanage and then lived with his brother for a bit, he then went to work at this Van Dyke gold mine after he left his brother's house. So he was familiar with the area. A gold mine or a complex of gold mines would be an easy place to hide bodies, um, find an old shaft that's been covered up, and you don't even have to dig a hole. And, then, and again, this is he's going to use this as a dumping ground for, for his victims. In October 1995, Moses called a news reporter after a segment on the killer aired on local TV. He claimed they had gotten the number of victims wrong as he had killed roughly 76 women and they were only giving him credit for 38 at the time. During that same phone call, he claimed the crimes were an act of revenge for a sexual assault conviction that unjustly landed him in prison for 14 years, where he was subjected to sexual assaults and torture from other inmates. He claimed his mother and sister died while he was in prison and he was causing pain because of the pain that he suffered. To prove he was the killer, he gave directions to a body of a victim of the ABC killings that the police had not found yet. The reporter attempted to set up a meeting with the killer, who police believed to be Moses, but he refused. So police went to old-fashioned police work and determined Moses had to have turned to family for assistance. Undercover officers soon learned that Moses would be visiting one of his brother-in-laws at a factory on October 18th. Officers set up a trap inside the factory, but Moses felt something wasn't right and refused to enter the factory. He tried to run, and an officer stationed outside the factory gave chase. The officer fired what he claimed were two warning shots and then sent, shot Moses in the leg. Moses fell to the ground, and the officer tackled him, but Moses started to bite the officer, so he shot Moses twice in the stomach. And this, again, is probably going to speak to the quote-unquote wild, wild west time that was going on here in South Africa. Um, warning shots are not anything you're ever going to hear uh, outside of movies or TV, uh, at least out of Amer modern American policing. Um, no department that I know of. Maybe there's some really, really, really small town department somewhere that it could happen, I guess, but there's no such thing as warning shots in law enforcement. When you fire a bullet it goes somewhere and it ends up somewhere and a warning shot fired off into nowhere could potentially hit an innocent victim so you're never going to fire a quote-unquote warning shot and then this this shooting moses in the leg thing my guess is the police officers aiming to shoot moses in the back and just happened to hit him in the leg people talk all the time about why can't police officers just shoot somebody in the leg Depending on what type of weapon you're using, uh, rifles are much more accurate than handguns, but and, and depends on the distance you are to the target. But under a high-stress situation, handguns, unless you're very, very well-versed with them and have spent a lot of time practicing, are not the most accurate weapons. Uh, just a little bit of too much trigger squeeze of anticipation of the jump of the handgun, of anything like that will throw the shot off depending on the distance, but can throw the shot completely off. 
So if you add in the fact that you're likely chasing down somebody, so you don't have a stable shooting platform, a high adrenaline situation, and a moving target and distance, being able to shoot somebody in the leg, you're either a really, 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 really well-versed and good pistol shot, or you go to shoot the guy in the back, and that's where the round ends up, is, is hitting him in the leg. And then you've got the situation where he's shot twice in the stomach, uh, South African police, including this officer, are going to come under a lot of scrutiny because a lot of their high-profile suspects in cases like this end up dead in police shootouts. And I think in the case of the other serial killer that was operating around this time that was killed, I think it was the year before, it was said that he came after the police officer the act with an axe, but a lot of people questioned whether or not that was true. So there was some questioning as to if this is actually how this incident actually went down or whether uh, police tried to eliminate Moses to save a trial but Moses is going to be taken into custody and he was rushed to a military hospital and treated for his gunshot wounds he survived and while recovering he was charged with 29 murders and he agreed to be videotaped for hours as he recalled his crimes for the investigators and is seen on the video tapes in a good mood and eating food and laughing he told investigators that he tried to pick victims that looked like the woman who put him in jail in 1987 after he sexually assaulted him, and by doing so, he felt he was punishing her. And I'm guessing these videos are probably twofold. One is to actually capture the confession, but two, I'm, I'm sure if they hadn't videotaped it, any confession that he gave, either through audio or anything like that, he would have claimed that he was tortured prior to the confession that he was beaten down and, and only gave the confession to stop the torture, whereas on these videotapes they've got him eating food, laughing, joking around. It's it's going to be hard for him to later on say that you know he did this under any type of duress uh, because of these videotapes. And his trial was scheduled for October of 1996, and police had since linked him to an additional two crimes. So he was ultimately charged with 38 counts of murder, 40 counts of sexual assault, and 6 counts of robbery for removing items of value from his victims to include jewelry. And the videotape confession that was shot while Moses was in jail came under scrutiny as it was alleged that some of the taping included the use of a secret camera which was illegal. The judge considered the issue at length, finally agreeing to allow the tape to be played at trial. And this is, you run into this every once in a while, uh, you'll see signs sometimes when you walk into, say, a, a retail store or something along those lines. There's a sticker that'll say, like, CCTV cameras in use. And in police stations, uh, a lot of times the interview rooms will actually have a warning outside the interview room saying you know, conversations in this in this room will be recorded or something along those lines because courts depending on which part of the country you're in in america depending on which country you're in in the entire world have different views of surreptitiously recording statements and sometimes uh, in some states in america a police officer can record their entire conversation with somebody on the other line without telling them that the phone call is being recorded uh, and in almost all states, it's illegal unless you have a wiretap warrant to just record a conversation where you're not present and it's just a conversation between two other people. And there's some gray area in between of, of when you can uh, record things such as inside of a custodial situation 
sometimes jails can get away with recording things because it's safety if the the, the inmates are plotting an attack on jailers or whatever it might be uh, there's not nearly as many rights granted to uh, people who are custody that's why all their phone calls are, are recorded and monitored all that kind of stuff uh, their letter their letters can be screened so again the judge has to weigh this all out and decide if this taping that was done with confessions he gave to officers confessions he gave to fellow inmates about his crimes whether those could be used in trial or not uh, eventually he does rule that they can be allowed in trial so on july 29 1997 the trial of moses sithole began the prosecution took two weeks to present its case and the defense then put moses on the stand he denied any involvement in the crimes but according to witnesses he was scatterbrained and incoherent most of the time then on December 4th, 1997, Moses was found guilty of all counts, and due to the high number of counts against him, it took over three hours to read the verdict out loud. The reading of the verdict actually had to be postponed at one point to be finished the following morning. And this is because they literally have to read in the, for example, it'd be something about, in the case of murder victim XYZ, we the jury find the defendant guilty, and they have to do that 38 times for the murders they have to do it 40 times for the sexual assaults and then six times for the robberies and i'm not sure i know south africa has several different languages uh, due to it being going through this apartheid and being under control of, of different uh, european nations at different times so i, I don't know if some courts uh, require the reading of the verdict to be done in different languages as well so it's possible that that would have extended the the verdict reading as well uh, i didn't read that anywhere in there but i have to imagine that if it took three hours there was likely maybe a couple different languages used as well and after the verdict was completed on December 5th, the judge told Moses that he would have sentenced him to death if the death penalty hadn't been deemed unconstitutional in 1995. But because there was no death penalty available, the judge sentenced Moses to 2,410 years in prison, with all the sentences to be served consecutively. Under South African law, Moses is eligible for parole after 930 years of time served and this sentence is roughly the 25th longest prison sentence in the world in modern history. And so I actually looked this up because I was interested to see how this compared to some of the other sentences. Now there is a case out of, I think it's Thailand, where the woman was sentenced to something like 141,000 years in prison because of a fraud case, it was basically a Ponzi scheme that she ran. And so sometimes courts can just throw out obviously outrageous numbers and it's basically you could just say you're in prison for life or in this case you're in prison for 141,000 years uh, life without parole and 141,000 years you're still going to serve the same amount of time you're going to serve until you die but um, I just I saw the 2,410 years and the, there's yeah I mean of all the sentences ever handled handed down throughout modern courts throughout all the countries in the world Moses is sitting at the 25th longest prison sentence. And he's serving that sentence at a maximum security portion of the Pretoria Central Prison, and that's the same prison he served his time for sexual assault charges from 1989 to 1993. And South Africa is a country rich in history, and while it still suffers from a violent crime rate, efforts have been made to reduce the crime rate over the last 20 plus years. 
And during the time Moses was active, the murder rate was around 67 homicides per 100,000 people. And so just for examples, I kind of went around the world to find similar numbers. And these are numbers from 2020. So this is St. Louis hit a record number of homicides in 2020 and that their rate was 88 out of 100,000. And so South Africa at the time was around 67. And Chicago's homicide rate, which Chicago has a very bad rap for its homicide rate. There are a lot of homicides, but there's also a high population. They were at 28.6. Um, so roughly half of where South Africa was at the time of, of this crime spree. And in 2009, the number across South Africa had fallen to 34, but has slowly been on the rise over the last four years. And some parts of South Africa, especially parts of Cape Town, are back up to over 60 in 2023. And But this is kind of common throughout the world. We're seeing as the, the COVID pandemic hit the world, as, as there was some, some social anarchy, as there's been some obviously American issues with policing, but global issues with policing. Uh, there's a, a rise in crime. So parts of Cape Town are back up over 60, but this pales in comparison to places like Tijuana, Mexico, which is known for being the most dangerous place in the world to live. They have a murder rate of 105 per 100,000 people. And most of the violence that plagues South Africa today revolves around the usual suspects, gangs, drugs, and other illegal activities. But thankfully, South Africa has not seen another ABC killer uh, since Moses Sithole, and hopefully they never will. So I did look through other serial killers. There obviously have been other serial killers in South Africa. I talked about the one that was killed uh, just before Moses was active, or, or during the beginning part of, of Moses being active. There was a guy in... The uh, late in the 80s in apartheid, he was a, a white security guard that was known for shooting people of color outside of uh, the, I guess he was put in charge of kind of a, a crime ridden uh, area of, of, of retail. There's a shop in, in this area of, of the city that he was in that was facing a lot of uh, burglaries and robberies and that kind of stuff so he was hired to, to head security to shut down these crimes well he was known for shooting people of color oftentimes it was claimed that he would shoot them that just for walking in front of the store and then drag their body inside and then claim that they had committed some type of a crime inside the store so he was justified in shooting them so he had like 20 plus murders to his name and those were racially motivated killings which obviously makes them extremely uh, immoral killings but as for a, a serial killer that picked out victims off of the street and then uh, committed a crime like this south africa has never seen in modern history anybody like moses and hopefully they never will again but that is the story of moses sithole thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at Productions at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions thanks guys for listening talk to you later goodbye